Why don't we go ahead and get started? As you remember from last time, we got kind of to talking about some stuff, and I didn't finish uh, the material that I was going to cover last session. And so what I decided is I just added some things in from the next session, kind of squished two together. So we'll, we're going to basically finish the Doctrine of Man part of this class today, and then we'll move forward and into the doctrine of sin next. And so, uh, yeah, and what I'm, I actually have a lot of verses to read, so what I'm thinking is maybe if everyone would be really willing to participate in reading this morning, I'll be able to better keep track and move through if I can just kind of assign each the next person up. And once we get to the back, we'll start back in the front again. <laughs> Uh, just giving you guys passages to read as we work through this. It's only going to be three slides this morning, but a lot of text to read through. So, But why don't we go ahead and start uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for a time to gather for corporate worship. Thank you for the consistency of assembling together week after week, no matter what's going on in our lives to worship you, to focus our hearts upon you, and to be, to receive from you the ministry of the Spirit through the Word, and to receive once again upon our hearts the truths of the Gospel. And thank you for the great blessing of being able to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in a local church every week. And uh, God, we, we rejoice in these things, and uh, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would bless our our time together, and that we would enjoy uh, a fruitful time of study this morning in this class, thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ and his creation of a new humanity, um, whom he has redeemed with his blood and is bringing to, to the ultimate uh, state of glorification. And we pray that you would bless our time thinking of these things, give us understanding, and we renew our minds and encourage our hearts through them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in this session we were talking about sort of finishing up our class on the doctrine of man by thinking of the man, Jesus Christ. And, and I added this in here because this was going to be the next session but the man Jesus Christ and a new humanity. And uh, so last time we talked about the fall, and I'm just going to go through these quickly. We talked about man f fell into sin and was corrupt and guilty through Adam. And so God raised up, raised up a second Adam, the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. And through him, a fallen humanity it finds redemption. And so we went through that, we talked about, we began talking about what Jesus did, how he functioned as the redeemer of mankind, and we talked first about how as the second Adam, he was a representative head of a new humanity. So those who would be united to him through faith would have his righteousness credited to them as a gift, just as we had Adam's guilt and corruption credited to us. Um, so we talked about we talked about Jesus as the second Adam, and where I want to pick up now is talk about 
another aspect of what Christ did to save uh, a new humanity, to redeem a remnant of humanity, you might say. So you have, on the one hand, his life of perfect obedience, even unto death, imputed to us who believe in him, or credited to our account, so that we are righteous through him. But then we have now, so not only is he the second Adam, but now we have also that he is the sacrificial lamb, that our guilt is taken away from us and laid upon him, right? So you have the second Adam, his righteousness credited to us, and Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, our guilt credited to him and paid in full. And so that's what we're going to look at here. So I want to uh, assign these verses as we go along. Elena, would you be willing to read John 1, uh, 29? And then Isaiah, would you be willing to read Romans three twenty one through 26? Sorry, I don't know your name. Gina. Gina. Do you want to read this morning? Okay. Uh, I'll have you read Romans 8, 31 through 33. Right there. And then let's see. Carol, would you read Hebrews 9, 24 through 26? Keith, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And then who's next? Quinn, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Or you probably have that memorized. You can probably just say it by heart. <laughs> All right, so the the point I'm going to be making here is that having lived a, a sinless life himself, a life of perfect righteousness, Jesus then, at the end of his life, at the appropriate time, offered himself up as a propitiatory sacrifice. And we'll talk about what that means. A propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of those human beings who were united to him by faith. And I would say that that is the elect. So in John's gospel, he often talks about those whom the Father has given me will come to me. God gave him a remnant of fallen humanity, Jew and Gentile, who would come to him, who would believe in him. So that even faith, even repentance and faith is a gift that the Father gives to to this remnant, that they are drawn to the Son and, and he bears their sins He offers himself up as a sin-bearing sacrifice to make atonement, to propitiate God, to satisfy his justice and turn away his wrath so that they might be forgiven and that they might have eternal life. So let's let's read through these texts. And Elena, let's start with John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, now you get the imagery there, right? When John says that, this is why, by the way, it's so important to read the Old Testament because the Old Testament makes sense of a verse like that, right? You have John the Baptist as sort of the last of the Old Covenant prophets. He sees Jesus as the Messiah and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what's everyone going to be thinking of when they hear that? As Old Covenant Jews, what are they going to be thinking of? They're going to be thinking of, yeah, the whole sacrificial system, right? (laughs) And how day after day, month after month, year after year, endless 
never-ending lambs and goats and bulls being offered up as sacrifices before God in the temple. And, and they're bearing the, the death stroke that, that they deserve for their sins. And thereby their sins are taken away, are removed, are atoned for. So when they hear John point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all of that old covenant sacrificial system that that would come to their mind and they go, somehow what John is saying is that this man, the Christ, the Son of God, would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb through whose sacrifice the sins of the world, which is a striking thing to say, right? Uh, Not just Jews, but people from every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, would be would have their sins removed through him. So it's a, a very striking thing to say. And perhaps the greatest explanation of this comes in Romans three twenty one through 26. So Isaiah, would you read that? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, for a demonstration of His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Alright, so you guys who know the book of Romans to some degree, what has Paul been doing in Romans 1 through Romans 118 through 320? Let's put it that way. What's he been doing? Do you remember? Presenting their need, right? Like just showing them the the depths of their sin, the Right. Right. So he starts off in Romans 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then he goes through and shows that, unpacks that ungodliness, that unrighteousness that evokes God's wrath. And he starts with humanity in general in Romans 1. And he talks about man's idolatry and their rejection of God, their suppression of the truth. And then he turns to the Jews and says, lest you think you are better You too, who know the law, do the very same things that the Gentiles do. So he gets to the end and he says, all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. And through the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, we can't do anything to justify ourselves, to establish our own righteousness. Rather, when we receive the law, when we look at the law, all we do is we we see our sin through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we all stand with mouths closed before God, guilty, unable to establish our own righteousness, and receiving the commands from God does no good because we can't keep them. All it does is show us our sin. You see, now he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is a righteousness that will come not through our law-keeping, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, in other words, the Old Testament anticipated it, pointed forward to it. We just talked about one way, the sacrificial system was all pointing forward to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Ah, so this is a righteousness that is given not through law-keeping, but through faith. For there is no distinction for all, right, Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created to glorify God as his image bearers, but we fall short of that. And are justified. Now, when you hear that word justified, you should think a courtroom. It's legal terminology. It means not, uh, it means justified means to be declared not guilty, but righteous. So if you had the bad fortune of ever being in a courtroom and having your case tried and you heard the guilt, the, the judge say, guilty, you would go, I'm condemned. I've been declared guilty of a crime and I'll be sentenced to some punishment. But if you hear the judge say, not guilty, you're like, ah, I've, I've been declared innocent, declared righteous, justified, and I'm not going to be subject to the penalty. And so he, that's what he's saying. We have all sinned, but we are justified, declared not guilty, but righteous before God. How? We've sinned. How can we be declared not guilty, but righteous? And that's what he says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption is the language that would come out of the slave market to be purchased through the payment of a price. So Israel was slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them out of Egypt, their slavery in Egypt, through the blood of a Passover lamb, purchased through the payment of a price. And in this case, what is the price by which he purchased us out of our slavery? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, the language of propitiation was closely tied in with sacrifice. A sacrifice was a you would a, a lamb would be slaughtered so that the lamb was making atonement for the sins of the person who offered it. And how was he doing that? He was bearing the penalty that that person deserved for their sin in their place. And the wages of sin is death. That's why we're talking about blood here, right? So God established this, this situation in which an animal, a priest, would, would put forward a sacrifice. And as that animal was slaughtered, the, the, the death stroke that the person offering deserved would be born in its place by a sacrifice. And therefore, the justice of God would be satisfied and his wrath would be turned away or assuaged or appeased or God would be propitiated. That's what that means. His wrath turned away. His wrath appeased through the satisfaction of his justice. But in this case, who is the sacrifice? Christ Jesus. And who put him forward as a sacrifice? God. This is a stunning, a stunning passage, isn't it? God satisfied the demands of his own justice through the sacrifice of his own son, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, so that his wrath could be turned away from his people. Christ is the redemption price whom God paid to purchase us out of our slavery to sin and death. And how do we receive the benefits of this propitiatory sacrifice? By faith. By faith right? In fact, it says, 
We are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift. This is the beating heart center of Christianity, right? This is the gospel in a nutshell, is that simply out of his free favor, we certainly didn't deserve it. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he does it out of his free favor, and he gives us it as a gift, this justification through the redemption price that he paid, his own beloved son, whom he offered up as a propitiatory sacrifice to satisfy his own justice against our sins and to turn away his own wrath toward us. Remember Romans 1.18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is his wrath turned away? Through the sacrifice of Christ. And how do we receive it? Simply by believing in Christ, trusting in him to satisfy God's wrath against our sin, right? So this is the way that God could both show his righteousness, right? In other words, that he's not just letting sin go. The penalty is paid. He shows his righteousness and he also can justify ungodly people. So he's not letting the penalty go by the wayside. Otherwise, he'd be an unrighteous judge, right? But he pays the penalty himself, God the Father, and through the sacrifice, through the willing sacrifice of his own son, Christ himself laid down his life willingly in obedience to the Father so that he might purchase us as his own bride. So that he might be the both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there, there it is, right? That's, you know, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you say, well, how does it work? That's how it works. Okay, let's keep looking. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 33. What then shall we say to these things? Is God for us? Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Yeah, and then I should have added in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. All right, sorry. Uh, that, that verse is a little confusing. You get that, uh, how will he not also with him? <laughs> That's hard. Uh, but you, you see what's happening here. This is on the other side of the cross, reflecting back and saying, okay, now, uh, for, for God's elect, right? Those whom he's chosen to save. For whom he didn't spare his own son. By the way, when you hear that, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What passage in the Old Testament do you hear an echo of? Isaac. Most scholars recognize a clear allusion to the Abraham not sparing. Remember, God tells him, because you did not spare your own son whom you loved, right? And here that language is being echoed. God the Father himself did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And because he died, now who's going to bring any charge against us, right? In fact, not only did he die, but he raised and he's interceding for us. So who's going to bring any charge against us? God's elect, for whom he died. No, and if God is for us, he's for us. He sent his son to die for us. Who will be against us? And so, this is why he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So, 
wow, uh, this is what Jesus did to save us. Not only was he the second Adam who obeyed God perfectly on our behalf, thereby granting us righteousness, like his righteousness, which credited to us, just like Adam's sin was credited to us. So Jesus's obedience is credited to us, that is his elect who believe in him. But now we see that our sin was laid upon him, as the old prophet said. Our sins were laid upon him and he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. So he made atonement for our sins, so our sin was removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far as our, our sins been removed from us. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. I think that's you, Carol. Yeah. For Christ has entered not into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. <clears throat> Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood of it, not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's just such a remarkable passage. He... <clears throat> He's saying, do you remember that old ritual, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the high priest once a year would go into that very holy of holies with the blood of sacrifices and sprinkle it before the, the very presence of God hovering between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, saying that was all, that was all, a, a, those things were copies of the true presence of God in heaven. And Jesus has died on the cross, taken his blood and entered into the true presence of God and made full and final atonement for all of our sin. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So no, no earthly tent, no human priest who needs atonement for his own sins. <laughs> uh, no repeated sacrifices, day after day, year after year. Once for all, in the very presence of God, put away sin through the sacrifice of himself. Wow, right? <laughs> uh, incredible. Let's look, uh, Keith, I think you have chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, which is... Yes. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies he made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's incredible. You know, you ask, how is it that Christ, how is it that his, the offering of himself was sufficient? One sacrifice, uh, a single sacrifice, is sufficient to perfect all his people for all time, right? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, because he was both man and God, right? One person, the Son, in two natures, divine and human, so that his sacrifice was of eternal 
value, uh, of sufficient worth to atone for the sins of a million, billion worlds of millions of people, right? We were just talking this last week on ladies retreat about the limitlessness of God. Right. And when you think about the sin that has been paid for by one sacrifice, it just flows right into that, his limitlessness, being able to cover all the sin. This is why we say he had Jesus had to be both God and man. He had to be man because he was taking the place of men, because he was representing men. He had to be a descendant of Adam to be our second Adam, right? There is one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus. But he also had to be God in order for his sacrifice to be of sufficient worth. No mere man could atone for all the sins of all men for all time. He had to be both God and man. Only Yahweh can save. Only God, only such a sacrifice as the God-man could atone for the sins of men for all time. So, again, incredible passage. And notice verse 18, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No more sacrifices necessary, right? Once for all time. All right. Uh, one more passage. Quinn, I think you have Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see that in that passage is summarized what might be called the great exchange? He who knew no sin, the sinless Son of God in the flesh, was made to be sin. Not that he actually became a sinner. Not that he was himself defiled in any way. But that our sins were laid upon him. That our sins were reckoned to his account and he bore them before God. So the sinless Son of God bore our sins so that in him, we, through our union with him, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that through what he did, we would be justified. We would be declared righteous in God's sight. So that his righteousness would be reckoned to us. I have explained this to my children many times through the use of the idea of a, you know, think of Jesus wearing a a white coat. You could put someone wearing a white coat and me in my black coat representing my sin, his righteousness, my sin. He takes my black coat, puts it on, pays the price for my sin so that it's taken away. And then his white coat, his perfect righteousness is put on me so that before God I through faith I receive it as a gift my sins are removed and his righteousness is credited to my account this is the great exchange this is justification by grace through faith through sacrifice of the son so now what I want to do is that what we've talked about represents the finished work of Christ in his death his, his substitutionary and atoning death, his, well, you could say his perfect life, his substitutionary and atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. But what we also want to say is that uh, as the second Adam, he, through his resurrection, 
when, when Christ was raised from the dead, he brought with him from the dead, in a sense, his people. So this people whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world, given him to save, this people whom he represented in his obedient life as their covenant head, obeying on their behalf, this people whom, whose sins he bore and made full atonement for, when he rose from the dead, he also secured their newness of life and their ultimate resurrection, so that he became the head of a, a new humanity who would be not only justified, but also sanctified and ultimately glorified. And that's what we want to look at now. When Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated. That's just a fancy word for if you, if you have little girls and you read the fancy Nancy books. It's a fancy word for he began, right? He began the creation of a new humanity who would share in his resurrection life. So, uh, let's see, who's next? Gwen, would you read for me 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Alright. The word that is translated there, first fruits, aparche in Greek, it's it was used in agriculture, right? So what would be your first fruits? In, in as a farmer. You got these fields planted, they start to grow up, the harvest time comes, right? It's those first that first batch that you gather in. But that first batch is not, you don't go, okay, well, harvest is over. Got my first fruits. No, it's it's a foretaste, right? It's just a sampling of the larger harvest. And when he uses that terminology to refer to Christ's resurrection, do you see what he's doing? He's saying Christ's resurrection does two things. It's a first fruits. He is, the, resurrect, the resurrected Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in Paul, he often used the imagery of sleep to describe death, the death of believers. Why, why would he use that terminology, sleep? Because it implies that it's a temporary state and there will be an awakening, referring to the resurrection. So, Christ is the, the first fruits from among the dead, you might say. And he does two things in his role as the first fruits. He, he indicates a larger harvest to come. So, Christ was raised to point to the fact that his people will be raised as well. And he shows you what it's going to be like. So if you've got some good wheat that is your that you've gathered in as the first fruits, you go, wow, it's going to be a good harvest because it's going to be like this. So when you look at Christ and you see him in his resurrected condition, you say, ah, he not only 
points toward a larger resurrection of his people, but he shows us what their resurrection will be like. It'll be like his resurrection. So you want to know what your resurrection is going to be like? Look at the resurrected Christ. And so Christ's resurrection from the dead, you might say, began the resurrection of his people. He was the first. And because he was raised, we know that the rest of his people will be raised. Except notice there's an order to this, right? Verse 22, or verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when he comes again in the clouds, with the cry of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet, his people will be raised from the dead like he was. Okay, this new humanity includes a remnant of believing Jews, just as the prophet said, and never promised, the prophets never promised that every single Jew would be saved, but a believing remnant would be saved. And to that is added, like Paul uses the imagery of wild branches being grafted into the natural tree, wild olive branches in Romans 11, to that remnant of believing Jews will be a remnant of believing Gentiles as well, so that they will become one new covenant people, a new humanity. You might say it's a, it's a remnant of a fa- the fallen human race, Jew and Gentile together, united to Christ and granted new life in him. They will be raised from the dead together to, to be a new humanity redeemed out of a fallen humanity. Where am I getting this? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Phil, are you ready to read a long passage? Sure. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Wherefore, remember that you being in times past, in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you are... But now in Christ Jesus, you sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the Christ, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preach, preached peace to you who were afar off, and to them that were nigh, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Amen. Thank you. So, 
what Paul is saying here is he's turning to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, right? And think of how Gentile-y these people really were, right? I mean, these were the people who had to bring their magic books and idols and pile them into a great pile and and burn them in sign that they were turning away from their ancient their old pagan practices. This was the place of, you know, where they had the great riot. Great is Diana or great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? This is a a, a city of a Gentile a predominantly Gentile city while but there were Jews in the church as well just like there were Jews in most of the cities throughout the ancient uh, Roman Empire, but predominantly Gentile church. And he's turning to the, these Gentile Christians, and he's saying, you were once far off. You were the people whom the Jews called the uncircumcision, right? You're outside the covenant community. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God. You were in the world. But now, in Christ, right? And who is Christ? I mean, we get so used to that language. That's the Messiah, the one promised in the old covenant scriptures. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ, what we've been talking about. He himself is our peace. Paul speaking as a Jew, he's saying Christ has brought us together. And how has he done that? He's done that by breaking down the dividing wall, the thing that separated them. And what was it that separated Jew and Gentile? Does he identify here? The law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The old covenant, which separated them off. And Paul is saying, Christ abolished the old covenant and made us both one. And in fact, he uses the language of create, as beautiful as the, uh, the language of the old King James is. It used the word made, I believe, but it could be, uh, it is translated in the ESV, create he might create in himself one new man which is very interesting is he just using a an image of a a man well it's like if i say if i use the the word fruit that could mean one banana or it could mean all kinds of a bunch of bananas right because it's a word that has that sort of ability to be singular or plural at the same time what's well, the same with Man, if I say man was saved by Jesus, you, I could mean one man or I could mean mankind, right? I think this word here could be translated humanity, right? To He might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in the place of the two, Jew and Gentile. Now one humanity in Christ reconciled together to God through the cross, which broke down the dividing wall, which abolished the old covenant and established a new covenant, so that now Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God and made his one people in the bonds of the new covenant through their common union to Christ and their common participation in the benefits of his death, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And, and then he just he uses all this old covenant terminology to describe them. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, he goes on to say that they are together a holy temple in the Lord. So, you couldn't have been more out, and now you couldn't be more in. You can't be closer to God than being his very temple, his very dwelling place. It used to be under the old covenant that you couldn't get near God. There were too many barriers. Uh, you, first of all, you couldn't enter into the temple. Only the priests could. And even the priests couldn't go into the actual presence of God in the Holy of Holies, except once a year, and that the high priest, and that not without blood. Right, but now, but now, all those barriers are gone. And as the writer of Hebrews says, you have access into the very holy places. In fact, you are a temple, collectively and individually. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Sam. And with that, um, you know, with us having faith in Christ, we're saved. For them who had fallen asleep, how were they saved? Was it like a hope for the Messiah or obeying the law, which right. we obviously failed at? And we failed at yeah, well, it, the, the, I think the scripture is clear. Like if you look at a, a text like Romans chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. And he points out, hey, nothing new about this justification by faith thing I've been talking about. Even Abraham, he said, he quotes Genesis fifteen six, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, and then he points to David. He said, what about David? Well, what did David say? Blessed is the man to whom his sins are not counted against him. So, He's pointing out that how were David and Abraham saved? Through God justifying them, forgiving their sins, counting them righteous. And how were they justified? When Was it through circumcision? And what was his point? Well, when Abraham believed God, he hadn't even been circumcised yet. That came in Genesis 17. Was it through keeping the law? No, the law came however many years, hundreds of years later. How was he justified? Through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, there's always been one way that people were saved, through faith in the promises of God. And in a sense, they were trusting in Christ. Why, why would I say that? Yeah, because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So all those promises were like the gospel in seed form. Even, however much revelation they had, they believed in it. And by their faith, they were saved. And they didn't even know it, but they were trusting in, in Christ all along. Because all those promises were pointing to him. And all those promises would come to fulfillment in him. So what you have now is you have the spirits of the righteous made perfect already in heaven. And they are one body with us on earth who have been justified by faith on earth. And together we are one new covenant people in Christ. And one day there will be no more spirits in heaven and saints on earth. It'll just be all the saints together. 
right? Yeah, Paul. Janelle and I were having a discussion. Um, so would you say, based on that, the spirit of God is working the same then? Well, with a slight nuance, I would say um, man was just as dead in sin in the Old Covenant as they are now. So if ever they were to repent and believe, that's not going to come from their nature. That's going to come by grace, by the, by the Spirit's regenerating work. So the Spirit was active in the Old Testament. He was granting repentance and faith in the Old Testament. You say, well, why was Abraham so different than Ishmael? You know, Well, because God's Spirit was at work in his life. Uh, or Esau, right? Esau and Jacob. What was the difference? Why did Jacob have faith and Esau didn't? Well, because of God's grace, his Spirit. However... You remember how Jesus said, when we memorized John 14 through 17, he said, I'm speaking of the Spirit who is with you and will be in you. So there is a difference in the way that the Spirit works. In times past, he would come upon people. He would certainly work in their souls, but he indwells his people in the new covenant. And that, you remember, that was the promise. I will put my Spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my command. So it's part of the escalation, the increasing of God's blessing in the new covenant. That now that we are the temple of his presence. Now the spirit dwells within us. So yes, always by spirit. No, not exactly the same. There has been a change um, in terms of the, the indwelling of the spirit. Instead of being upon us, you've been. Or, yeah, you might say Jesus made the, the contrast with us in the old, in us in the new. Um, now, that's not to say there is, some di- there is some element of mystery here because, you know, we're not saying that the Spirit doesn't work within us in the Old Testament. Uh, he worked within the hearts of people, but there wasn't the indwelling presence in the same way as in the new. Okay. I'm going to run out of time again here, so I better keep moving. I also want to say that this new humanity, Jew and Gentile, which is created by Jesus, they experience new spiritual life now through the regenerating work of the indwelling spirit. So if you're in Ephesians, Ephesians 3... So flip forward, and you see the contrast. Ah, sorry, not Ephesians 3, 2. So just earlier in chapter 2 is what I was meaning here. Ephesians 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. If you look down in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see the contrast there? We were dead, living according to the lust of our flesh under God's wrath. Because of his great love and mercy, He made us alive in Christ, together with Christ. In other words, when Christ was raised up and seated at the heavenly places, He secured that one day 
we, by the power of the Spirit, would be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life and be seated with Him, share in His exaltation spiritually now. And that is a nothing less than a new creation worked by God. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, if you knew yourself before you were saved, you know this. You weren't doing good works, not in the truest sense, right? But now, by this new creation work, this being made alive, now we're, we do good works. That is works of faith for God's glory in obedience to His commands. And that, that comes about because of this work of new creation, this work of regeneration. So, let's see, who's next here? Yeah, would you read a Titus Oh, I knew you were going to. Are you okay with reading? You don't have to. I'm okay with reading, but I my pages stick together, and I <laughs> Titus three four through six. If you can find it, yeah. Titus three four through six. I have the other one already. Yeah. Oh shoot. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. All right. So do you see there, you see the combination? So he, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so Christ appeared and in him the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared and he saved us and he justified us apart from our works and he washed us through a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Um, and this is how we became, by the way, if you... Look back at chapter 2, verse 14. This is how he became this people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. <laughs> Through this washing and renewing work of the Spirit within us. So you see... It's not just that his death paid for our sins and that we were justified through his obedience unto death. It's that we are raised to new spiritual life through the regenerating work of the Spirit. So this is why you see when someone truly is forgiven of their sins because they truly believe in Christ, they don't stay the same person that they were. Their lives change. There is the fruit of new spiritual life, of regeneration that takes place. All right, we're going to have to skip some of these here. But we could point out that this process, their life now becomes a process of being transformed into the image of Christ by the ongoing washing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And he works through their obedience. So let me... Let me uh, I'm going to have to start reading some of these so that because I can uh, do it a little bit quicker here. Ephesians 4, when you look at this passage, you see all this language, this language of new creation, this language of image being conformed to the image of Christ, 
combined with our activity. So verse 20, after saying, you're not to live like the Gentiles do anymore. He says, assuming verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's an ongoing process of putting off like an old set of clothes, your old sin nature with its corrupt desires, and putting on like a new set of clothes, your new nature, as it were, your, your new self, who you are in Christ, your regenerate self, which is being renewed progressively into the image of God. So what was lost in the fall is now being regained uh, as you are conformed to Christ by the Spirit. And it, but it's not something that happens passively. You don't say, okay, Lord, just do it. <laughs> he says, put off sin. You remember how Paul says, if you, put to de- if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, right? Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 is another key text here. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ, whom, as we see His glory, as we know Christ more and more, the Spirit transforms us more and more into His image from one degree of glory to the next. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, we will bear the image of Christ because that is what God predestined us for. When he chose to save us, to give us to Christ to save, the ultimate goal was that Christ would be like the elder brother among many Christ-like people. All right. And they will experience the glorification of their entire nature through resurrection when Jesus returns in the last day. All right. Now, there's. I want to read so many texts here, but I can't. So, um, but... This is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, isn't it? He describes not only that we will be raised, but he describes what kind of bodies we will be raised in. And just to give you a little taste of it, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. This last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see? He's saying when we're raised from the dead, we'll put off this perishable body, verse 53, and we'll put on an imperishable body that will bear the image of the Son of God in perfection. Do you remember John says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And our mortal body will put on immortality and then the saying will come true, death is swallowed up in victory. All right, so this is our ultimate goal. Now, if we were to just say, what is the end story of the human race? Well, the end story of that remnant of humanity, of fallen humanity, who is redeemed through Christ as they are united to him by faith, we say the they end up becoming a new humanity who inherits a new creation. And so what was lost at the fall is fully recovered through Jesus at his second coming. Right? There will be a new humanity in glorified bodies living in a new creation set free from the curse and under the rule of the God-man Jesus Christ in perfect communion with God forever. Now let me just, there. you can see some of these passages, there are many passages in which you see this hinted at, but let's just end where you really have to end in this regard. The end of the Bible, the end of the story. Let's, Revelation 21, verse 1. This is a vision of what you might say is the consummation. Remember I said that word inaugurated is a fancy word for beginning? The consummation is a fancy word for the end. So what began at the resurrection of Christ, remember? First fruits? Will we'll come to its full completion at the end. And this is what it will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So this New Jerusalem is a new humanity, right? Who is in covenant relationship with the bride or with the bridegroom, Jesus, right? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There's the consummation of relationship. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things that pass away. No more curse. No more sin. No more effects of sin. And let's skip down to Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, the New Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, right? No more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
There will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, when you hear rivers, tree of life, right? Um, You think Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 and 2. We've, We've gone full circle through this incredible drama of redemption, creation, fall, redemption through Christ, and now consummation at His return. And what you see is a is a return back to the beginning, except even greater, right? Better than the beginning, you might say. Glorified people, no more curse, no more sin, full access to God, full communion with God, full experience of His blessing, and it will never, ever end. And so this is the end story of humanity, redeemed, fallen in Adam, redeemed through Christ. And the story that tragically uh, took a tragic turn in Genesis 3, we see a vision of how it will be fully undone. Do you remember that the, those great lines after Sam woke up in The Lord of the Rings? He woke up in Gondor and he says, Has everything sad come untrue? This is, this, this is what it is. Everything's sad, wiped away, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. So, this has to be our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy toward us. Oh Lord, we were were fallen in Adam under your righteous judgment for our sins. If we ever got what we deserved, it would have been eternal destruction for we had sinned against the holiness the infinite holiness of an eternal God but you had mercy upon us you chose to save us you sent your son to redeem us in the most remarkable unfathomable way by becoming a man and being our second Adam being obedient on our behalf unto death burying our sins in our place paying the penalty we deserved And then rising again as our eternal high priest and calling us through the gospel, granting us repentance and faith by the inner working of the Spirit, making us a new creation, uniting us together as one new covenant people, conforming us even now into the image of your Son as we know him more. And one day we know that you will bring us to glory in glorified, resurrected bodies into a new creation set free from the curse and made new. Oh Lord, we long for those days. And we thank you that we have these precious promises that bring us joy and hope even in the midst of the sorrows of this present evil age, in the midst of the mess of our own sin. And so, Father, we, we praise you. We give you all the glory. You have done it all. And you will complete the work that you have begun in us, as Paul says in Philippians 1. And we praise you for that. And we we want to be walking in a manner that is worthy of this great calling with which you have called us. Putting off the old man. Putting on the new. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen us to do that. 
Give us a deeper knowledge of Christ that we might be conformed to his image more and more from one degree of glory to the next. And we pray it in his name. Amen.